welcome to episode two of the Alec Hogg Show, a half-hour audio biography with guests selected simply because they're interesting. Today's guest is Nick Hudson, whose name has surged into prominence since March through efforts to balance the COVID-19 narrative, and that's via a group called Pandemics and Data Analysis, or Panda. We'll hear more about that in a little while. But like other guests on this show, Nick has been selected on the basis that if his story were captured in a book form, it would be a bestseller. So eavesdrop for what follows, and I've got a feeling by the end, you'll definitely know Nick better, but also, quite likely, leave uplifted, inspired by his example. Just by way of background, when I was looking at your profile and on LinkedIn, are you from the Eastern Cape? Yeah, that's right. I, I was born in East London, the bustling metropolis of, into a family that had uh, been there for many generations. I revisited it uh, a couple of years ago for the first time in many, many years, and it was looking a little bit tired. It was almost as if the uh, the growth that had happened elsewhere in the country had passed it by, um, and I was quite sad. In my childhood, it was a beautiful spot. And then you went to Grey High in PE. How come? Well, uh, it's true. I was at Grey High for a while, but that was one of um, nine schools that I attended, I think is the number. I eventually finished up at St. Stithians. But yeah, Grey High was probably the school I spent the longest at, which was about two and a half years. Yeah. That's a lot of schools, Nick. As a child, um, we moved to the United States and then returned to South Africa. It was during that whole uh, sanctions era. And my father worked for Johnson & Johnson. So I think we had a, a little bit of moving around that. And, yeah, that was a pretty formative thing. Um, I think by the time I got to Cape Town, I was on my 10th or 11th city. <laughs> Difficult to make friends or do you teach yourself at a young age to actually uh, integrate more easily? Uh, actually, spot on. Uh, it was difficult to make uh, the, the sort of the long, enduring friendships. That that was a trick I only learned after leaving university, actually. Yeah. I see you were at WITS in the actuarial science department. A little while ago, was, I had a really good chat with Adrian Gore and Barry Salzberg, who met there. Adrian was a year ahead of Barry. But it seems as though... It's got something going for it, that department. What drew you there rather than perhaps somewhere else in the world or even Cape Town? And and is it really a, a nursery for the kind of great entrepreneurs rather than just focused actuaries? Hmm. It's an interesting question. I, I wouldn't know, you know whether that is the case or not, that it uh, particularly has a lead on the other universities. But certainly, okay, so what drew me there? It, at that stage, it was economics. I, I had a place at uh, UCT, which was my first choice because my the other half of my family comes from Cape Town and my parents were both UCT graduates and spoke fondly of their time there. But um, certainly when I was at WITS, there was an, an incredible quality on the staff. Uh, Professor Anthony Asher was the head of department in, in, in actuarial science and he was he remains a, 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 a close friend and advisor um, and yeah, we just had such quality of professors. Some of them are still there. Uh, uh, Professor Stephen Jurish is still there. He's he's a uh, he's part of the furniture. So yes, I think I think the, the department when Gore and Schwarzberg and I would have been there in roughly roughly similar era um, was a very high quality one. 
Um, there's no question. I've, I've kind of lost contact with it now, but I, uh, with Stephen still being there, I can't imagine that it doesn't produce the goods. Anthony Asher, the young journalist, I remember he was in the business field. That's right. He was the head of the Prudential and took on Liberty Life in a, a famous legal battle that uh, uh, came at much personal cost. Um, very fine man, yeah. And still, he lives in Australia now. So he was he was running the Prue. They were acquired by Liberty. And then he went into academia, and you had the good fortune of uh, of actually working with him. Interesting how uh, how small a world we have. It, it is interesting, and yeah, especially in South Africa, it's very easy nowadays with LinkedIn. Followed your career, off you went to Swiss Re. Maybe we could talk about that. You, did they give you funding for your actuarial uh, studies? Exactly, and that funding came attached with the condition that I went to Wits. So that's how I ended up at Wits because Stephen Jurish actually worked for. Uh, Swiss Re at the time. So I ended up working there to pay off my bursary. But quite quickly, I, I, I kind of realized I'd made a bit of a mistake in terms of uh, career choice. I wasn't really well suited to being a typical actuary, I would say. So I sort of started gravitating out of the conventional actuarial roles very quickly with the assistance of a, the then CEO of the company, Lenz Kiel, who was um, uh, when I went to speak to him about the, the problem I was encountering, he was very generous about it and helped me find more interesting, well, for me, more interesting things to do. And and uh, that took me on a wild trajectory that uh, I've been on ever since, I would say. But why did you go into actuarial science in the first place? I was destined to be a doctor all my life. I came from a medical family and in the Eastern Cape, this history of, you know, these physicians who worked in the border region, uh, especially focused on tuberculosis and that kind of thing. Um, both of them graduates of Edinburgh University. And, you know, my, my mother was a physio. My uncle was an acclaimed neurosurgeon. You know, before I could talk, I was going to be a doctor and became the black sheep of the family when I was uh, 17 or 18, decided that against medicine. And I, I kind of didn't process it all too well. Somebody at the, the guidance department of the school suggested actuarial science. I had no idea what it was, looked at it, sort of decided, well, that's maybe going to be better than medicine for me. And I went into it. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, premeditation. I actually have always regarded it as something rather unfortunate that we push young people to focus in specialities and into more balkanized disciplines at such early ages. I'm a big fan of a, a broad-based general education early on. Those guidance counsellors, and when we're young and impressionable, aptitude tests, I remember, yes. you take them and they say, okay, you should be doing law or uh, accounting, or in your case, I'm sure you had pretty good marks at school, so become an actuary. Yeah, exactly. I think the logic was as simple as that. I mean, they mean well, and, and no great harm done. I mean, no, I've sort of, still had a very interesting time in life and uh, you know, have crammed as much as I can into it. So, you know, no harm done. But one of my dreams would be when, when I've finished this phase of my life in private equity to, to get into education and to reassert some of that more classical uh, PPE type uh, uh, syllabus, uh, the approach to learning as, as more general initially than, uh, so, than specialized. You know, I'd love, to, I'd love to get involved in that. I was talking to someone yesterday about exactly that. Uh, they they graduated in philosophy. They started off in journalism and then did philosophy for their masters. And I remember in the old Anglo-American when Harry Oppenheimer would select his his closest and dearest, he'd go to Oxford or Cambridge and pull out those PPE 
students, the philosophy, politics, and economics students, rather than going for those who had been uh, commercially trained or accountants or lawyers, etc. And it worked for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that. And, and, and actually, by accident, I ended up with a bit of a PPE education because I would bunk out of the actuarial and statistics classes all the time. Usually what I went to depended on who my girlfriend was at the time, but uh, so there wasn't too much process going. But I, I, I loved philosophy and, and have ever since. Um, to this day, I, I spend a fair amount of my not inconsiderable reading time reading uh, the, the in, particularly in the Popperian branch of philosophy, notably the, the more recent author, David Deutsch, who's made a huge impression on me over the last five years. A very, very uh, interesting character. You're listening to the Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Well, you just summed up why you then went in, into the role that you did when the pandemic hit and mm-hmm. what was being propagated throughout the world and including South Africa, perhaps uh, absorbing it mostly, was a narrative which said millions and millions of people are going to die. This is going to be the pandemic to end all pandemics and uh, you better not go and breathe on anybody close to you because you might kill them. And we had this level five shutdown. Everyone in South Africa seemed to be on the same page. And then up pops this organization called Panda and Nick Hudson and Peter Castleton. And you can tell us about the other guys there who said, no, that's not the case. And my goodness, you have been right. But what got you thinking in that direction against the stream in the first place? Yeah, I mean, the other guys are an important part of the equation. Dr. David Carmen, um, Shane Kricher, attorney at Worksman's, um, Russell Lamberti, um, who's an economist at ETM Analytics. The, the conversation was going amongst us in, on a very informal basis and, um, and, and initially just motivated by curiosity and nothing else. You know, what if this is an interesting event that's happening? What, what, what does it mean? And as we started grappling with it, we came to conclusions fairly quickly and fairly at odds with the prevailing narrative. So we saw the the virus as a much smaller problem than was being made out and lockdowns as, as a big negative rather than the positive that they were being represented as. How do you find each other, Nick? Dave and I have known each other for decades. Uh, Shane and I have a long-standing commercial relationship and Russell and I have also, you know, had a, had a friendship uh we, we share a, a number of interests in reading. Peter, I didn't know. Peter, I found on social media after we got a little bit worried. He was one of the really early joiners on that to that group of the original group of four. Uh, also, Ian McGorian came on quite quickly. I just recognised a, a person who was having the identical thoughts. It was very coincidental, and I direct I DM'd him on Twitter, and he responded. And so we and and was, that was very important because he's a real man of action, uh, of Peter Castleton. And I don't think we would have uh, sprung into action nearly as quickly if it wasn't for him. But apart from sharing ideas and uh, getting irritated at, at what the popular narrative is, you've also had quite an impact on, on the public. Obviously, through Biz News, you've, you've published a few pieces. We've spoken to you various times. You were our top podcast, uh, I think it was in the month of June, with your views. That doesn't just happen. There has no. to be something behind it where did the the idea come to take it public well well it's interesting because we've only recently really had the 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 space and time to to think about that ourselves you know because it, 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 we were propelled into action very quickly and and then became extraordinarily busy i mean all of us have day jobs and, and businesses that we have to maintain and so on 
So this was really very hard work. You know, we were working long, long hours for months on end. Um, and so we haven't had time to indulge in the navel gazing. But I, I can remember my own um, psychology at the time. I, I, I was just feeling terribly unsettled, you know, very on edge and twitchy. And I was getting into arguments with people and being told to you know, shut up. Uh, this is the wrong narrative, you know. And it was leaving me very unsettled. And I think what it was was you eventually get to the point where knowing what you know, which is that we're on the verge of perpetrating a great social injustice, knowing what you know, is it even an option to do nothing? Um, how are you ever going to be able to look your children in the eye? You know, so even if you make an effort and it, it, it leads to nothing, uh, at least you'll be able to say to them, listen, I did fight this. I did fight as hard as I could. And it's, it's fascinating. That is the shared feeling. Everybody just had this overwhelming sense of social injustice and a, uh, a willingness in the face of what we knew to, to take whatever risks and do what, make whatever efforts it took, uh, to fight it. And, and that was very much the spirit of the organization and why we could all look past our various political and other differences and, and just focus on the task at hand. Because it's an extremely diverse group. I mean, we've been cast as being libertarian and the ironic thing about that is there aren't actually any libertarians in the group. Not that that would be a problem if there were, you know. <laughs> But uh, it's a it's a crazily diverse group. Um, dur- during lockdown, we had a, a you know one of the a, ch- a church services you know where, where was, there was a, a little bit of a somebody over ordered on the communion wine, and um, it was fascinating because it was the first time that the the group had in many instances ever clapped eyes on each other. You know, the conversations were crazy. Because, uh, you know, people found, oh, well, we, we share this, this common bond, but, you know, all of the other viewpoints are, um, quite different. And yet it was done in the discussions took place in this, uh, uh, very sort of warm atmosphere of, um, being willing to listen, uh, and challenge and hear people out. And yeah, the hypothesis testing, explanation, refutation, the flavor of, uh, panda. One of your supporters, but not publicly at that point was Magda Wizikcha. From Signia, she said that uh, she had wanted to join Panda, and then was warned off by the Actuarial Society. We also at BizNews had a, a, a very threatening letter from a bunch of academics at uh, mostly from the University of Cape Universities of Cape Town and Stellenbosch, who said, "Why are you giving these people from Panda any exposure whatsoever? In fact, uh, we demand that you no longer speak with them." Why do you think there was such a virulent reaction? So I didn't know that that Manda, uh, Magda had been warned off by the society. That was that was that's news to me. And um, yeah, look, I I think it's very important to distinguish between the society and people in it. It's normal for there to be conflict within a profession. I would regard that as a healthy thing. But there there was this minority group in the profession who predominantly people who built the models that we were attacking. And I think so that was that was one component there and they they became quite vocal. And I think you always have critics being more vocal than people who who support a view, you know. So I think there was some of that. I am surprised by the comment about uh, Magda, but it makes sense now because she initially came out supporting us on social media and then went quiet for a while. But more generally, this is a spirit of the times problem. It's not about the profession or about any profession. Um, there is this idea of there being authorities. Those authorities cleave to a narrative. And that narrative, anybody who challenges it is, uh, 
you know, tinfoil hat or something to be slurred and slandered, as opposed to being able to engage and debate. And it's wrapped up in this whole cancel culture story and I think extends more broadly uh, identity politics in general, you know, postmodern relativism. These are all strands of the same thing that that all lead to this kind of view that, well, it's about the loudest voice and it's about the authority figure. We have had all sorts of allegations of being armchair epidemiologists or not being healthcare actuaries or, you know, things like that. They're various uh, ideas that never addressing the substance of the argument. And that's been a real problem here because had that substance been addressed, the models that were used in this country would not have been so bizarrely wrong. And the policy decisions might have been better informed um, by uh, outfits such as the NRCD, the MAC and SAMRC and the Actuarial Society. Um, I think that would have gone very differently if there'd been a normal process of engagement and discussion. Are they listening now? Hard to generalize. Certainly, we, we had a meeting with the NICD, and the, the feeling I walked away with is that they were just looking for holes in our work. They, it wasn't really a legitimate engagement seeking to understand. They were on the defensive. SAMRC, perhaps partly our own fault, has also been a little bit of a testy engagement, and there's been no engagement with the MAC. I suspect there will be at some stage. But our, our current posture is that we're making an appeal to public health people to come out and make a firm stance. You know, this this business, uh, Professor Karim going on national media and saying uh, there's second waves coming and there's a there's reinfection problems and there are long-term effects and all of this. At the same time that he's saying in the Mac minutes that lockdown should end, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. There's no scientific basis for the for these threats that he's seeing. He went out and predicted a resurgence in cases when the lockdown was lifted we know that lockdown has no impact. There was no resurgence in cases. At some stage, he has to start listening to us and realize that his own perspective on this whole epidemic is wrong. Perhaps listening to what's happening elsewhere in the world, because presumably that's where you're getting a lot of your information from. Yeah, that's been a fascinating part of this. I mean, Twitter has been astounding. <laughs> you, you have all of these people who are in similar positions to us all over the world, you know, for whatever reason, shouted down if they stand up and uh, speak against the narrative. And so what they do is they take to social media behind pseudonyms and uh, pump out their work there. But it didn't take long, you know, before we were connected to to people. And um, the research that we got, like a, a journal paper in, a, in, in an area cannot be published for minutes before it goes and, and it's circulated amongst that group, if it's good, if it's of relevance, if somebody's you know, read it and said that's it, and out it comes. So we're getting all the live information. If somebody gets an interesting perspective, I'll have seen it by the end of the day. And the quality of the engagement is, is amazing. We've, where trust has been built up, we've managed to make direct contact with the people and engage on, you know, real Zoom uh, conferences and so on. And uh, we've picked up a number of people in Panda in, in, in that fashion. Very little of the insights that we, we talk to are, are generated by us. It, there's a hell of a lot that we're getting from this international community. And it's, it's work of great quality, we believe. It's so interesting you mentioned that because when I discussed with South Africa's only living Nobel Prize winning scientist, Professor Michael Levitt, uh, he said the same thing. He said he loves this Twitter. He'd never known about it before in Stanford. He runs a couple of the departments there. He said, but now he can, he can publish things and people can come back at him with questions or indeed support or ideas of 
looking in different directions. And yet for the mass society, Twitter has become a den of fake news, of of character assassinations and so on. So you've got this group of people who really are seeking knowledge, who are using Twitter to that end, whereas others perhaps are using it to their own uh, self-interest. Interesting to, to, to contrast those two. Yes, uh, it is interesting, and I think it'll take uh, some decades before we fully understand the dynamics of these social media systems and how to use them more effectively in society, how, what pressures can be brought to bear on their evolution to make them uh, more of a net positive. But Levitt is fascinating. I mean, he, he made the same point that that, that we saw, um, seeing it as a potential existential crisis, this lockdown mania. It really is amazing. I mean, this is the, the science prior to COVID is firmly against lockdown. The World Health Organization, the CDC, any number of epidemiological journals, any number of epidemiologists, they're all you know, uniformly against everything you, you're hearing about now, the lockdowns, the school closures, the international border closures, the cloth mask wearing, all of that is, sits there in the epidemiological literature as being stuff you shouldn't try. And then along comes China. And somebody suddenly everybody's taking a policy steer from China, which at the same time as locking people down is also rolling out a genocide and against the Wugios and shutting down all number of civil liberties in Hong Kong. I mean, what on what possesses you, you know, to take a policy steer from China other than some weird uh, political ideology or fear? I think it's a combination of the two. It's been- any impact of South Africa's close relationship with China through BRICS, which into which we were invited by them. Do you think that played any role in the approach that South Africa followed? Yes, I do, although it must be pointed out that South Africa followed a path that initially wasn't different from the rest of the world. What's been different about ours is the absurd duration of the lockdown. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into that. I have some understanding for where this came from, and it's a bit disturbing, but yeah, I do. I, I do find the close relationship with China very disturbing. I mean, this is the most illiberal, one of the most illiberal countries in the world. The irony is that all the growth it's had has been from the extent to which they were prepared to to liberalise. Now they're stopping, and the growth is slowing down. It looks to me like a, a destined to fail project. I I'm not one of these people who sees China as the future of the world. I, I don't think they're ever going to make the jump to liberalism. You're listening to the Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Well, from where we sit, uh, if we were in China, uh, this conversation wouldn't have happened to start with. But every single piece of, uh, of of product that would come out of an organization like ours has to first go through a sensor. It surprises me sometimes that if you think of that from a, a media perspective, so many in the media seem to be supporting and cheering China on, yet perhaps not looking at that, I heard Neil Ferguson, the, the great historian, describing them as useful idiots. <laughs> I don't know if that's a little bit over the top, but uh, what's your view on, on all of that, having read philosophy, having perhaps seen more of the world than most? I, I do trace this a lot to the academy. Um, I, I think that certainly throughout the West, there's been a uh, a, a continuing slide into what I would describe as postmodern or socialist type thinking, rooted in very bad philosophy, 19th century empiricism, which is this kind of idea of it's technocratic, it's data driven, it's, uh, you know, uh, trying to abstract 
from um, data sources in order to work out how to tinker with the machinery of complex systems like economies and epidemics and climate and so on. That has been ascendant. It never stopped, even with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. This penetration of the academy by these uh, very regressive notions of how the world is put together and how it should be run has continued apace in South Africa, in America, in the UK. And it's now gotten to a ridiculous point where I, I think you, you actually, as a parent, would have to think very hard before you send your child into a humanities course at any university anywhere in the West because they are going to have their heads filled with such uh, deranging ideas, to, ideas that have no chance of turning into progress or anything generative that you know, can, I think, destroy lives, you know, destroy the lives of the people who are there trying to educate and help in the world, you know. Where does it come from, all of this? How has it been enabled? Well, I, I think somebody pointed out to me the other day that one of the problems is that we haven't really had a major crisis. There hasn't been a Second World War. This generation and possibly the one before, the, all the way from the boomers, have lived their lives without any real calamities of the nature of the, the Second World War. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that that's true of every single person in the world. Of course, there are people who have suffered terribly at the hands of all sorts of um, crazy dictators and horrible conflicts and so on. But just just the, the bulk of people do not know what it's like to to live under some terrible regime. I class lockdown in the same category as Hitlerian socialism or Stalinist socialism or Maoist socialism. They're all of a piece. You know, the, these ideas come from the same basket of of horrible goodies, you know, and it, it, it's the, the, the appeal of lockdown to a socialist is great. So I do see it as dripping with political meaning and rooted in these these crazy campus ideas. You can, you can trace the ascendancy of those since the 1970s. Maybe the absence of hardship, maybe times are too good. So there's enough surplus in society that you can pay for all these people to have tenure and sit at universities with no, there's no onus upon them to develop a product or a service that somebody actually wants. You know, they're not disciplined by a market or by a customer who's unhappy or something like that. You know, they sit there earning what is tantamount to a fiat income, a government, a government income, a government salary, safe from any discipline by uh, market forces or evaluation outside of their echo boxes. And so they, they can sit there convincing themselves that this is the right way to look at the world. And you come up with this, uh, this craziness, this, this weird view. Just think of this as a purge. What these guys tried to do was purge us, right? They tried to cut us out of the discussion. There's never been an attempt to address the substance. And, and I, I see this all the time. Very dishonest things. We, we get quoted as saying things we haven't said. Our models get represented as, as doing things they don't do. At some stage, we didn't even, we, we weren't even inclined to, to produce an epidemiological model. We were just pointing out that the, the models were inconsistent with reality. And so they started saying things about our epidemiological model when one didn't even exist, you know. So I, I've been saying to people for a while now that the, the, the most important read of uh, COVID is, has got nothing to do with viruses or the epidemic. The most important read of COVID is Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That's the book you need to read to understand the psychology and why so many otherwise good people have just gone along with this uh, very harmful uh, set of policies. Before we let you go, 
what's next for you? You're in private equity. You've uh, you've got your own firm now after spending a decade with RMB in private equity. So you you certainly trained uh, in in the right place, as it were. You've been going quite nicely, presumably in your own company, but also been exposed to the reality of what's happening on the ground through lockdowns. Are you seeing a, a civic-oriented role for yourself now that you have emerged over the past six months through Panda? It's a great question and also one that I haven't had really much time to think about. I mean, the quiet life was quite nice. I'm going to have to process that all. Um, yeah, I, I, private equity, I have a fiduciary responsibility to my investors and I will definitely do everything in my power to see that through. Um, and see where that where that gets to next. I am getting towards the end of the, the the investment period for my fund. It's going fine. We've been very lucky uh, to to come through with all the portfolio companies intact through the COVID crisis. Um, but as I said to you earlier, education is on my mind as something I would like to look at. I don't think I'd be a good politician. So public roles are probably not going to be for me. And and the, the, one of the enabling things about my personal position that enabled us to speak out was independence. You know, I don't answer to a big corporate for whom this would be an impolitic line or to a government uh, employer. I only answer to, to myself ultimately. And so that was why I was able to speak out. And so most important to me would be to preserve that independence, to stay free of the influence of money or um, somebody else's power over me. But will they let you into academia? I don't think I'd want to go there. I mean, I, I'm quite happy to contribute to intellectual endeavors outside of it. I think there's going to be need to be an answer to the existing systems. I don't think reform from within is possible. It's too far gone. What I'm getting at is, is, an, is a new type of venture. Um, and, you know, that's, that would also be also make more sense for me in terms of my private equity background is how do you totally um, reconfigure the educational system and make sure that the content is actually based on the best human explanations and the, the best that man has created and, and not the worst. Thanks for being with us for the Alec Hogg Show. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple iTunes. Until the next time, cheerio. Cheerio.